Brandon Edmonds uh, was going to do the scripture reading, but he is serving on behalf of all of us uh, in the nursery. So uh, I will do it, and then we can go from there into the sermon. Uh, This is the second week in our sermon series uh, called The Gospel-Centered Life. Pastor Todd uh, started the series last week, and he's now on vacation in California and Oregon, and he will be back next Sunday uh, for sermon number three. This comes from Luke chapter 18. He, that is Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for coming to us, for calling us, for meeting with us this morning. I thank you for your word. We believe this crazy thing that you have spoken in words written down that have power, not just for the first century or the fifth century or the 15th century, uh, but for every age. Lord, I pray that you would make that power moan amongst us this morning. Lord, give us life the life you had in yourself. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, Many of you know, uh, before I uh, went to seminary, before I came here, I spent a couple years as a campus ministry intern working in college ministry. And campus ministers are kind of a breed all of their own. They're not quite youth ministers, but they're not really normal pastors either. Uh, It takes a special breed to run with college students and uh, ask the sorts of questions that college students ask and, and all those sorts of things. Um, most campus ministries have campus ministers who are so intense or so awkward or so just so uh, that, that they become legends over time. And RUF, the campus ministry that I was in, certainly has a few of those. One of them is Hal Farnsworth. And he was a campus minister long, long before I ever became involved. I believe that he was uh, at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville. Uh, But campus uh, ministry training, when all the interns and campus ministers got together, was partially a time to train on how to minister to college students, but it was mostly just a time to tell Hal Farnsworth stories. Uh, Hal Farnsworth is one of those people who has an incredible insight into what's going on with a person almost as soon as he meets with them. And he's also completely fearless. And so he had a habit of saying uh, dramatic and extreme things that no one else would say uh, that somehow usually worked out for the best. Uh, so here's an example of one of those stories. So Hal is he's doing his campus ministry thing. They've got their large group meeting on a weeknight with some singing. And then he gives a talk and some more singing and they're done. And uh, his ministry was huge, at least 200 students, just to kind of give you an idea of the size of the room and what's going on. And so after the meeting, 
he's milling around with students. And this one new student comes up to him and says, that was a really interesting message. I'm not really sure that, uh, that I buy it, but uh, I'd love to get together with you and talk about it sometime. And uh, just so you know, if any of you were to come up to me and say that, I would immediately think, yes, somebody wants to talk to me about Jesus. Uh, but I'm not Hal Farnsworth, because uh, Hal Farnsworth said, nah, I ain't got time for that. So the student says, what do you mean you don't have time for that? You're a campus minister. This is what you do for a living, isn't it? Get together with students. And Hal Farnsworth points out to all the other students and he says, you see all those people out there? Those people want to get together with me and talk about Jesus. You just want to debate with me and I don't have time for that. And then he said, but I'll tell you what, you go home. And you find a Bible, and you read John chapters 1 through 8, and then you give me a call or send me an email, and we'll get together. The student's like, whatever, man. So a week goes by, no email. A month goes by, no email. A year goes by, no email. Two years later, Hal gets an email. Hal, I don't know if you remember me. My name is John. We met a couple of years ago after one of your meetings. Hey, man, my life, is, my life is coming apart. I need help. Would you be willing to get together with me? P.S. I read John 1 through 8. Guy got converted on the spot. Uh, I still don't know that I would do ministry that way. Uh, but I do know that Hal understood something about the nature of faith. He understood that all genuine faith begins with desperate faith. I think it's something that Christ knew as well. If you, um, I don't know how much time you've spent with the Gospels, uh, the four books in the New Testament that tell the story of Jesus' life. But if you read through them, particularly in Luke, um, I challenge you to not come away uh, in other words, I'm saying, I doubt that you will read them and not come away with the impression that Jesus deals with all of the people that come to him in basically one of two ways. You've got a, a, a set of people that come to him and they ask things like, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Or they say, good teacher, we know that you are sent from God. Uh, or good teacher, what is the sum of all the law and the prophets? And in almost every case, uh, Jesus not only doesn't answer their question, but he basically says, you don't know, and challenges them, and oftentimes sends them away, uh, which is not something that I know that I don't know if I would be willing to do, but that's, that's what he does. And then you've got another group of people who come to him and say things like, Jesus Christ, son of David, have mercy on me. Or people who do really awkward things like sneak up behind Jesus and touch his robe so that they might get some of his power. Or they don't even go to him. They send a messenger to him and tell the messenger to say, look, Jesus, I'm not even worthy for you to come to my house, but just just say the word and my daughter will be healed. And in every case, not only does he do what they ask, but he welcomes them in and often he 
eats with them at their house or celebrates with them in lavish parties. Jesus knows our hearts, and he knows that all true faith begins with desperate faith. It is, um, it's the great offense of the gospel. Uh, some of you may not yet know that Christianity is offensive. The rest of us have forgotten. But this really is its message, that, there, that there's one who is good and right and glorious, and, and it's not me, and it's not you. And if we have any amount of self-awareness, when we look at him and we look at ourselves, we will be desperate. We will find ourselves in desperate need. The word that Jesus uses in this passage actually is humility. Uh, And I thought about using that word, but I chose desperate instead because I feel like for us, desperate is a little bit more powerful of a word. And especially given the context of this story where Jesus illustrates humility by a man who beats his breast and doesn't even look up, that probably what he meant is something more of what we would hear when we hear the word desperate. Uh, So I want... What I want to do today is invite all of us back to a desperate faith. If you're visiting with us this morning, you need to know that that that's what this message is about, that we come to Christ in desperation of our need. Last Sunday, Pastor Todd talked about the reality of our sin and our own brokenness and darkness and the glory and beauty and majesty of Christ's and God the Father's goodness and holiness and loveliness and the great gap between them and how Christ meets that gap. And when we come with desperation, he welcomes us in as he did this morning in the assurance of pardon. Uh, For the rest of us who've been Christians for a while, I want to invite us, I want to invite us back to that place. And that, that's really what this sermon is about. Um, The second chapter in the gospel-centered life, the book that we're taking our cues from, uh, is called ways of shrinking the cross. And the idea is that over time, um, you know, we've had that experience of, of desperation and saw our need and been welcomed and embraced by Christ and filled with joy. And as time goes on, it's almost inevitable that we tend to move away from that. It's so uncomfortable to be desperate. It's so out of control. It's so shaming. Who among us loves to be in debt? to someone else. Who doesn't hate that? Um, And so we find ways of of moving away from the desperation. Um, I was going to reference real quick the Old Testament reading we had in the beginning. Just pay attention again that when revival comes to Israel, the response, their first response is to mourn and weep. It's another picture of that desperation. We... um, We tend to move away from this desperation in one of two ways. Uh, The book, Gospel-Centered Life, titles them Pretending and Performing. We'll start with uh, performing. Um, I think it probably applies to most of us here. It certainly applies to me. Performing is that we, we know that we come in and, uh, and we have desperation. We're met by Christ and welcomed in. And, and now we know that the job is for us to become more like Christ. And we grow and we discipline ourselves and we do good things. We volunteer in the church. Uh, this is my 
my volunteer set um, who come every Sunday and unlock the building in the morning and lock it up afterwards and watch our children and print the worship folders and, and give of your money. And don't get me wrong, these are all good things. I want these things to happen. I, I long for more of you uh, to participate in such things, to teach in Sunday school and to welcome our community in, in every possible way. Uh, that, that, if you know me at all, tends to be my typical message, but I have not preached the whole gospel unless we notice that those good things are also the sorts of things that the Pharisees tended to do. If we look at our passage in Luke 18, the Pharisee prays first. He says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, which, let's be honest, is great. I mean, we can't understand this passage unless we see the Pharisee as a good man. He's the sort of man that we would like to be, that certainly that we would like our children to be. He's not like other men. He is a good man. He fasts twice a week. Um, the Old Testament, by the way, commanded to fast, fast twice a year. So this guy has gone above and beyond, way above and beyond, out of his own desire to be a good and righteous Israelite. He gives tithes of all that he gets. So not only does he get 10% of his paycheck to the church, this guy's given 10% of his birthday presents. He's given 10% of his tax returns. He, he's funding the church. If folks in the church gave 10%, we could do some pretty amazing things. And this guy is doing that. Uh, but what we want to see is not what he's doing what is going on in his heart? God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. See, he is, um, he's forgotten what God said in the Old Testament that the Israelites were a, a stiff-necked, unlovable people that he chose to love. He has now risen to a place of love. If, you are, uh, if you're a volunteer, if you're a, a performer... Let me ask you, um, if somewhere down in your heart there isn't a storyline that goes a little bit like this. Sure, we're all Christians here, and we've all been forgiven, but there's, there's kind of two types of us. There's those who get it, uh, and who volunteer and participate, and there's those who, who don't get it quite yet. And we certainly hope that, that they will. Uh, and that is just not good. In fact, it's, um, it's disgusting. This is not what Jesus has for his people. We are called to humility and love and grace that uh, what he has done for us is so far beyond anything that we could ever do for him or for the church or for anyone else uh, that we are here not to outperform others, uh, but to invite them to come along. And as we focus on Christ, we will more and more see that our performing is so small, it's barely noticeable in comparison to Christ's righteousness. I'll remind you that Christ himself had a little congregation of 12 disciples, and I would group them in one of two categories. Those who didn't get it, and those who really didn't get it. <laughs> uh, and it's often difficult to tell the difference between those two groups, and Christ loved them anyway. And if we can 
have that humility, that sort of ongoing desperation, I think we will rediscover his joy, his love for us. Uh, Well, the second way to minimize the power of the cross, which is really to minimize our desperation, is by pretending. Um, Pretending that sin isn't quite such a big deal uh, as we thought. Uh, And the storyline goes goes something like this, that that we come in here and uh, we're very thankful that uh, that Christ died for us. That was very sweet of him. Um, And we attend church and we work our jobs and we pay our bills on time. Uh, And we're generally good people. Uh, And if we look in, um, the text isn't in our worship folder, but the very next passage in the second half of chapter 18, there's another story. Uh, these stories are pairs. They go together for a reason. It's called The Rich Ruler. And he comes to Jesus, and he says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And uh, Jesus says, You know, don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And the man says, Yep, all these I have kept from my youth. Uh, and that is, that's the picture of, of pretending. And it's easy to do because those, that's a list of dramatic, flagrant things that not many of us have done. Commit adultery, murder, steal, bear false witness. But what Christ says is, okay, that's good. Uh, he says, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. I think what Christ is doing here is it's, it's a little bit about the poor. It's a little bit about distributing money. But really what he's doing is he took one of those Ten Commandments that he just talked about. He took the one about not stealing, which is really, if you think about it, about affirming your neighbor's property. It's about affirming the fact that we all need stuff. We all need a certain basic amount of stuff to survive. And are you willing to not only take from your neighbor, but to make sure that everyone has what they need? That he takes one example and blows it up, makes it real to the full extent. I think what he's really doing is he's inviting this young man back to desperation. Say, you, you have not understood. You, you are not self-aware. and the gap between yourself and the law, and what it really means. And, uh, and sadly, the man walks away, and Jesus lets him go, just like Hal Farnsworth. He's inviting him to desperation and giving him time to go away and contemplate the challenge that was laid before him. And uh, if you think this is you, I'll challenge you. Is there, a, is there a thought line in your heart that goes something like this? Yes, we've all been forgiven, It was sweet of Jesus to die for us. Um, But really, there's two groups of people in the world. There's the basically good people who go to church, like me, and participate. Uh, And there's some of us who kind of take this kind of seriously, and I'm not sure why. But anyway, we're here and we're participating in church. And then there are those those other people, the bad people, the the sorts of people that, uh, I don't know, I haven't met them, but they're in jail uh, or, or homeless. And so I'm not them. And, uh, and, and we chuckle, but on some level, is, do we make ourselves feel better with subtle distinctions like that um, that make it 
just a little bit easier to pretend that righteousness, that true goodness is, uh, is a small thing. Uh, both of these ways, performing and pretending, really, if we think about it, are, are closely related. They're kind of two sides of one coin, because in both cases, they, they sort of lift up what we're able to do and, and tear down our need, and uh, ultimately sort of lead to this sort of nasty, legalistic self-righteousness that separates us from other people. In between these two stories in the chapter of Luke, um, there's sort of this total aside where people come up to Jesus and they bring children to him and the disciples are sort of feel that this is awkward and want to stop it. And Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Uh, and what it means to receive the kingdom of God like a child is a whole different sermon. But I do believe that that little nugget is in between these two parables in Luke for a reason. That that this is what Christ is pointing us to instead. Uh, and children are, are nothing, if not desperate, uh, in a very real sense, that they need to be fed and have their diapers changed. But when they receive love, they receive it so freely. Um, my son is always sad when he gets disciplined, but, but man, when the discipline is over, he receives my love like that, and we are right back where we were. And that is so hard for me to do as an adult with Christ. You know, honestly, um, we talk about his grace a lot and his, and his forgiveness. Um, but, well, before I get there, let, let me say this. Um, so I'm inviting us back to desperation. And both of these stories, I think, do that. But what is, what is true desperation? What does healthy desperation look like? And I want to clarify that I don't think it's self-loathing. Um, I think it's just being self-aware and having an ongoing, powerful sense of our need. If you think about both of the passages we've seen today, the Israelites, in the first reading, they hear the law and they weep. And then what happens? Ezra and Nehemiah and all the priests say, don't weep. This is a great day. This is a feast. Let's go have a feast. Because they're prophets. And there's many, many prophets in the Old Testament who, who say, look, you guys don't get it. You need to mourn. This is not a time for feasting. But when the people do mourn, that is the time for feasting. That it is a mourning, a weeping, that is supposed to lead to feasting. In other words, they get it. Let us enter into the joy of the Lord. They actually use that phrase in the passage. This is a, a day of holiness for us to enter into the joy of the Lord. They think true desperation doesn't really lead to self-loathing. It leads to a kind of paradoxical joy where we're desperate and so joyful at the same time. See the same thing in our passage here in Luke 18. It's the tax collector who says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then what's the next thing? He says, I tell you, this man went out, uh, down to his house justified. That, justification, this is a term that, uh, that we love in our tradition. Uh, and if you're not familiar with it, it basically means you are, in a legal sense, fully set free, not guilty. And not just not guilty, but accepted, welcomed, embraced, justified. Uh, and this is what I would say just a moment ago, that when I think about Christ's forgiveness and justification, honestly, most of the time, I don't really feel accepted. I sort of feel, I don't know, provisionally accepted. 
Sort of like, Christ is like, okay, I'll receive you for now. We'll see how things go. And I think for many of us, that hesitation to fully accept Christ's justification, his full, free, overwhelming, unbounded, almost inappropriate, welcoming love, is a byproduct of lessening our desperation. Desperation is designed to, to lead to that, to bring us true joy. Uh, there's a, a church in St. Louis in the inner city called New City St. Louis. And uh, I didn't go there during seminary, but a bunch of my friends did. And uh, it's, a, it's a multi-ethnic church. They've uh, specialized in reaching out to immigrants uh, in communities from all over the world, which means that they have their service in English, and they also have people there to translate into Nepalese and Burmese and all sorts of languages. Um, but the real point is that um, there's people there who really get the gospel. And uh, I wasn't there for this, but one of my friends was. They're having a, a typical worship service like ours with singing and some prayers out loud and some more singing. And when the singing finished, um, by the way, I've used this illustration before, but I'm recycling it because it's that good, and I just want to use it again. Okay, so um, they finished the singing, and there was a lady standing up towards the front who, and this is not written in the liturgy. She wasn't reading printed words, just all by herself, chose to say out loud, Thank you, Jesus. 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 And she went on for a few minutes. <laughs> and finally, when she had finished, the pastor came up front and he said, if you knew what Christ has done for this woman, you would understand. And that's what I want to invite us to today. Don't, doesn't, doesn't a part of you wish that you were that free to just come in here and belt out, thank you, Jesus, for two minutes in such an awkward way? How great would that be? Uh... But instead, I want to tell you about a couple things that I've heard in my time here. Um, I've been told by people who attend our church or who visit our church that uh, sometimes they want to raise their hands in worship um, or to sing more loudly than they do and that they don't because they feel like that's maybe not welcome. Or okay here. Uh, and I've heard other people tell me that, um, that we talk about sin a lot here, but they don't really feel comfortable telling people about their sins um, because it seems like other people have it together so much or people wouldn't understand or people wouldn't be able to handle their, their real sins. And I'm not saying that we're a bad church. And I don't even know why that is. But if people experience that when they come here, I hope that it makes us ashamed. And I hope it makes us ask, what are we doing? What have we done 
that we have given people the impression that this is not an okay place to belt out, thank you, Jesus, or even raise our hands, or even be honest about our sin. One is to invite us back to that sense of desperation that not only leads to joy, but leads to a sort of community that is so welcoming, so friendly, so comfortable to anyone who might come in here. Not to say that, that there's not change that needs to happen in people's lives, but we want, first of all, is for this to be a place where people like this tax collector can come in and beat their breast freely and know that they are welcomed. And um, I think that's uh, all I have to say this morning. Um, and just to remind us that that Christ's forgiveness is for us, that he, um, he doesn't welcome just the, just the righteous people. He actually welcomes actually just sinners, just the sick people. And so, in a sense, the fact that our church might be profoundly messed up uh, might qualify us just for that kind of love. So I want to invite us again to receive his love this morning and contemplate the sort of fruit that might come about from a gospel-centered life of continuing desperation. Let's pray. Lord, you have loved us with not only a great love, you have loved us with a completely unnecessary, unmerited love. Lord, you are, I believe, doing your work among us, Lord. The smell of your gospel is here, Lord, but not always. We pray that it would be more and more. Soften our hearts. Bring us back to life, Lord, that we might say, thank you, Jesus, in Christ's name. Amen. Let's close in song.